0: Thanks very much, I am honored to be here. This meeting confronts me in a very painful way with the limitation of being a philosopher. I cannot answer your probably implicit demand to provide solutions or at least directions what to do apropos the ongoing financial crisis. The task of philosophy is not to provide answers, but to show how the way we perceive a problem can be part of the problem mystifying it instead of enabling us to solve it. There are not only wrong answers, there are also wrong questions. These wrong questions are what we call ideology. When we are dealing with a problem, which is undoubtedly the real one, ideology performs its invisible mystification. Say, tolerance designates a real problem. And I, as a rule, ask when I oppose tolerance, but how can you be for intolerance towards foreigners, for anti-feminism, for homophobia, and so on. But therein resides the catch. Of course, I'm not against all this. But what I am against is today's automatic perception of racism as a problem of tolerance. Go and check Martin Luther King's speeches. The word tolerance is practically absent from them. For him one doesn't find racism with tolerance, but with emancipatory political struggle, even armed struggle. So why are so many problems today perceived as problems of intolerance, rather than problems of inequality, exploitation or injustice? The immediate answer lies in the liberal multiculturalist basic ideological operation, the culturalization of politics, political differences, differences conditioned by political inequality or economic exploitation are naturalized and neutralized into cultural differences. That is into different ways of life which are something given, something that cannot be overcome. They can only be tolerated. And incidentally, I think that the same goes for harassment. In today's ideological space, the very real harassment raised bigotry. is often reduced intertwined with, to or intertwined with the narcissistic notion of an individual who experiences all proximity of others as an intrusion into his or her private space. Ideology is, in this precise sense, a notion which, while designating a real problem, blurs a crucial line of separation. And I think we should do the same apropos the financial meltdown. What can help us is the fact that the very term ideology intervened at the crucial moment of the debates surrounding the ongoing crisis. As probably a lot of you know, on October 23, 2008, Alan Greenspan, the non-partisan subject supposed to know, secret master of the long period of economic growth in the last decades, was submitted to a congressional hearing. In the climactic moment of this hearing, the U.S. representative Henry Waxman intervened, quote, I'm going to interrupt you, he said to Greenspan. The question I have for you is, you have an ideology. This is your statement. I do have an ideology. My judgment is that free competitive markets are by far the unrivaled way to organize economies. We have, have tried regulation, Regulations none meaningfully worked. That was your quote. You had the authority to prevent irresponsible lending practices that led to the subprime mortgage crisis. You were advised to do so by many others. And now our whole economy is paying its price. Do you feel that your ideology pushed you to make decisions that you wish you had not made? Greenspan's answer... I found a flaw in the model that I perceived as the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works. End of quote. In other words, Greenspan conceded that when earth, as he called it, once in a century credit tsunami has engulfed financial markets, his free market ideology shunning regulation was proven flaw. Later, Greenspan reiterated his shocked disbelief that financial companies failed to execute sufficient surveillance on their trading counterparties to prevent surging losses. Another quote from Greenspan. Those of us who have looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equity, myself included, are in a state of shocked disbelief. End of quote. Shocked disbelief. Does this then mean that the financial meltdown will be a sobering moment, the awakening from a long economical-ideological dream? Well, it all depends on which ideological interpretation or story will impose itself and determine the perception of the crisis. When the normal run of things is dramatically interrupted, the field is open for ideological competition. For example, as we all know, in Germany, in the late 20s and early 30s, Hitler won in the competition for the narrative which will explain to Germans the reasons for the crisis of the Weimar Republic and the way out of it. His narrative, of course, his plot was the Jewish plot. In France, in 1940, it was Marshal Petain's narrative which won in explaining the reasons ...for the French defeat. It's not the failure of France, it's the failure of the Jewish uh, Freemasons and so on. Corruption, so, defeat by Germany is a unique chance for the restoration of French greatness. And so on. The danger is thus, I think, that the ongoing meltdown will be used following the lines of what Naomi Klein called the Shaw Doctrine. Quote the history of the contemporary free market was written in shocks. Some of the most infamous human rights violations of the past 35 years, which have tended to be viewed as sadistic acts carried out by anti-democratic regimes, were in fact either committed with the deliberate intent of terrorizing the public or actively harnessed to prepare the ground for the introduction of radical free market reforms. End of quote. So... I think the danger is that the ongoing meltdown will also be used as a kind of intended or non-intended shock therapy, creating ideological conditions for further liberal measures. This already happened a couple of times when nobody expected it to happen. For example, some male leftists claim that it is the legacy of the cultural revolution in China which acts as a counterforce to the unbridled capitalism, preventing its worst excesses, maintaining a minimum of social solidarity. What if, however, it is exactly the opposite that is the case? What if in a kind of unintended, and for this reason, all the more cruelly ironic coming kind of reason, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, with its brutal erasure of past traditions, was a shock which created the conditions from the ensuing capitalist explosion. What if today's China has to be added to Naomi Klein's list list of states in which a natural military or social catastrophe cleared the slate for a new capitalist explosion? There is even a further paradox at work here. There is beyond all cheap and superficial analogies, a profound structural homology between the Maoist permanent self-revolutionizing, the permanent struggle against the ossification of state structures, and the inherent dynamics of capitalism. I'm tempted to paraphrase here Bertolt Brecht's pun, what is the robbing of a bank compared to the founding of a new bank. (laughs) What are the violent and destructive outbursts of a red guardist? Caught in the Cultural Revolution, compared to the, to the true Cultural Revolution, the permanent dissolution of all life forms necessitated by the capitalist reproduction. Today, the tragedy of the Great Leap Forward in China in the late 50s is repeated as the comedy of the rapid capitalist Great Leap Forward into modernization. With the old slogan, iron foundry into every village, re-emerging as a skyscraper into every street of Shanghai, and so on.
1: Consequently,
0: to put, in, to put it in old-fashioned Marxist terminology, the main task of the ruling ideology today is to impose a narrative which will not put the blame for the meltdown onto The global capitalist system as such but on its secondary accidental deviations too large legal regulations, the corruption of big financial institutions, and so on. Against this tendency, one should insist on the key question. Which flaw of the system as such opens up the possibility for crisis and collapses? The first thing to bear in mind is that the origin of the crisis was uh, benevolent one. After the digital bubble, in the first years of the new millennium, the decision across the party lines in the United States was to facilitate real estate investments in order to keep economy going. Today's meltdown is the price paid for the fact that the United States avoided a recession five, six years ago. The danger is thus the predominant narrative of the meltdown will be the one which, instead of awakening us from a dream, will enable us to continue to drink. And it is here that we should start to worry. Not only about the economic consequences of the meltdown, the so-called, to use the nice uh, euphemism, further structural adjustments. But we should worry about the obvious temptation to reinvigorate the war on terror or interventionism, military interventionism, in order to keep the economy running or in home politics the sudden rise of populist racism all around Europe. I more and more think that in this post-political era where we are today, that we are slowly approaching a new model in the developed states where the two parties are no longer mod- moderate left, moderate right, but, what they call it, a neutral technocratic party, usually more culturally, open, post post-political claiming we are just for the uh, 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 ad- uh, reasonable administration. So, pure technocratic party and more rightist populist party. That's the only alternative, unfortunately, which is emerging. An exemplary case of how the meltdown already is used in ideological political struggle is the debate in the United States on what to do with general motors. Should the state allowed its bankruptcy or not. Since General Motors is one of the institutions which define the so-called American dream, its bankruptcy was not considered unthinkable. But more and more voices now refer to the meltdown as the additional push which should make us accept the unthinkable. For example, a recent column in New York Times uh, uh, uh with the title, Imagining General Motors Bankruptcy, (coughs) dotted the eye when it focused on the standoff between General Motors and its unionized workers. Here is the quote. Bankruptcy would allow General Motors to unilaterally reject its collective bargaining agreements as long as the judge approved. End of quote. In other words, bankruptcy should be used to break the backbone of one of the last remaining strong trade unions in the United States, leaving thousands with lower wages and other thousands, much more tragically, with lower retirement sums. Note the contrast with the urgency to save the big banks. Here, where the survival of thousands of active or retired workers is at stake, There is of course no emergency, but on the contrary, an opportunity to allow free market to show its brutal force. And if the trade unions as if the trade unions, not the wrong strategy of the managers, are to be blamed for the General Motors trouble waters. This is how the impossible becomes possible. What was hitherto considered unthinkable within the horizon of the established standards of work, distance, and solidarity should become acceptable. Marx wrote that bourgeois ideology loves to historicize. Every social, religious, cultural forum is historical, contingent, relative, every forum with the exception of its own. There was history, as Marx put it, but now there is no history. With capitalist liberalism, history is at an end, the natural forum is found. This old paradox of liberal ideology exploded with new power in today's apologies of the end of history. To get a clinically pure, as it were, distilled version of today's capitalist ideology, one should turn not so much to Fukuyama as to, my choice, Guy Storman, a French journalist-ideologist. I will not call him theoretician. The very title of the interview, one of the interviews he recently gave, This crisis will be short enough, signals that Sormann fulfills the basic demand that ideology has to meet with regard of the financial meltdown to renormalize the situation. A quote. This ceaseless replacement of the old with the new driven by technological by technical innovation and entrepreneurialism, itself encouraged by good economic policies, brings prosperity. Though those displaced by the process who find their jobs made redundant can understandably object to it. End of quote. This incidentally this renormalization of course coexists with its opposite the panic raised by the authorities in order to create a shock among the white. The very fundamentals of our way of life are threatened, and thereby to make the public ready to accept the proposed solutions. Back to Sorne. His starting premise is that in the last decades, more precisely after the fall of socialism in 1990, economy finally became a fully tested science. In an almost laboratory situation, The same country was split into two, West and East Germany, South and North Korea, South and North Vietnam. Each part submitted to the opposite economic system, and the result was unambiguous. But, I asked myself, is economy really a science? Does the present crisis not demonstrate that, as one of the participants put it, no one really knows what to do? The reason is that expectations are part of the game, How the market will react depends not only on how much people trust the interventions, but even more on how much they think others will trust them. One cannot take into account account the effects of one's own interventions. So, while Sormann admits that market is full of irrational behavior, his medicament is not even psychology, but neuroeconomics. Listen, quote, Economic actors tend to behave both rationally and irrationally. Laboratory work has demonstrated that one part of our brain bears blame for many of our economically mistaken short-term
1: decisions, while another is responsible for decisions that make economic sense,
0: usually taking a longer view. Just as the state protects us from Akerov's asymmetry by forbidding insider trading, should it also protect us from our own irrational impulses? Mark. End of quote. Of course, Sorman is quick to add that. Another quote. It would be preposterous to use behavioral economics to justify restoring excessive state regulations. After all, the state is no more rational than the individual and its actions can have enormously destructive consequences. Neuroeconomics... ...should encourage us to make markets more transparent, not more regulated. End of quote. I mean, I found this proposal wonderful... ...to treat this necessary uh, psychological effect of capitalist market... ...so-called irrational behavior... ...as a neuronally-based pathology to be treated in this way. With this happy twin rule of economic science... ...supplemented by neuroeconomics... Gone are the times of ideological dreams masked as science, so so, uh, Sormann claims, as it was the case of Marx, whose work, quote, can be described as a materialist rewriting of the Bible, end of quote. But even if Marxism is dead, the naked emperor continues to haunt us with new clothes, the chief among them, according to Sormann, ecologism. Sormann (coughs) claims that the ecological movement is the communism of the 21st century. Well, it is certain that ecologism is a recreation of communism, the actual anti capitalism. However, its other half is composed of a quarter of pagan utopia, of the cult of nature, which is much earlier than Marxism, which is why ecologism is so strong in Germany with its naturalist and pagan tradition. Ecologism is thus an anti Christian movement. Nature has precedence over man. The last quarter of ecological problematic is rational. There are two problems for which, listen, that's true, for which there are technical solutions, end of quote. Note the term technical solutions. Rational problems have technical solutions. I claim a blatantly wrong claim. The confrontation with ecological problems demands choices and decisions, what to produce, what to consume, consume, and so on, which ultimately concern the very way of life of the people. As such, they are not technical, but eminently political, in the most radical sense of fundamental social choices. So, back to Sormann, no wonder that capitalism is presented in technical terms, not even as a science, but simply as something that works. It needs no ideological justification because its success itself is its sufficient justification. uh, Capitalism works. That's it. Now, Solomon is aware of the problem that lurks here. How to keep people's faith in capitalism alive when the inexorable reality of a crisis brutally crushes these dreams? Here enters the need for a mature, realistic pragmatism. One should heroically resist dreams of perfection and happiness, and accept the bitter Capitalist reality as the best possible or the least bad of all worlds. Rarely, I think, was the function of ideology described in clearer terms, to defend the existing system against any serious critique, legitimizing it as a direct expression of human nature. An essential task of democratic governments and opinion makers when confronting economic cycles... And political pressure is to secure and protect the system that has served humanity so well, and not to change it for the worse on the pretext of its imperfection. Still, this lesson is doubtless one of the hardest to translate into language that public opinion will accept. The best of all possible economic systems is indeed imperfect. Whatever the truth uncovered by economic science, The free market is finally only the reflection of human nature, itself hardly perfectible. End of quote. So, it doesn't work fully, free market, but the reason is directly human nature. End of quote. Such ideological legitimizations, I think, perfectly exemplify a but use precise formula of the basic paradox of enemy propaganda. Enemy propaganda fights something of which it is itself not aware, something for which it is structurally blind. Not the actual counter-forces, political opponents, but the possibility, the utopian, revolutionary, emancipatory potential, which is immanent to the situation. Quote for Badiou. The goal of all enemy propaganda is not to annihilate an existing force. This function is generally left to police,
1: but rather to annihilate an unnoticed possibility of the situation. This possibility is also unnoticed by those who conduct this propaganda, since its features are to be
0: simultaneously immanent to the situation and not to appear in it. End of quote. This is why I think enemy propaganda against radical politics is by definition cynical not in the simple sense of not believing its own words, but at a much more basic level. It is cynical precisely and even more insofar as it does believe its own words, since its message is a resigned conviction that the world we live in, even if not the best of all possible worlds, is the least bad one, so that any radical change can only make it worse. Solomon's version is, of course, brutal to be directly endorsed as hegemonic. That's why I picked this relatively unknown guy here, at least in the eigenstaxing domain, B. Sormann. Because, you know, you have to look to the margins to see the underlying ideological structure emerge at its purest. Well, there is something of an over-identification in Sormann's version. He states Too openly the underlying premises. And this is why he is an embarrassment. Out of present crisis, the version which is emerging as hegemonic, I think, is not this brutal reassertion of capitalism, but that of, as they call it, socially responsible eco-capitalism. While admitting that in the past and present, capitalism was often over-exploitative or catastrophic, The claim is that one can already discern signs of a new orientation which is aware that the capitalist mobilization of society's productive capacity can also be made to serve ecological goals, the struggle against poverty and so (coughs) on. As a rule, this version is presented as part of the shift towards a new holistic post-materialist spiritual paradigm. In our era, so we are told, in our era of the growing awareness of the unity of all life on earth and of the common dangers we are all facing, a new approach is emerging which no longer opposes market and social responsibility. They can be reunited for mutual benefit. As Thomas Friedman put it, nobody has to be vile in order to do business. (laughs) Collaboration with and participation of the employees... Dialogue with customers, respect for the environment, transparency of deals are nowadays the keys to success. Capitalists should not be just machines for generating profits. Their lives should and can have a deeper meaning. Their preferred motto is social responsibility and gratitude. They are the first to admit that society was incredibly good to them by allowing them to deploy their talents and amass fortunes. So it is their duty to give something back to society and help people. After all, as they like to say, all of them, from Bill Gates down, what is the point of my success is not to help people. It is only this caring that makes my business success worthwhile. This new ethos of global responsibility can thus put capitalism to work as the most efficient instrument of the common good. But, I claim, was the financial meltdown of 2008 not a kind of ironic comment on the ideological nature of this dream of the spiritualized and socially responsible eco-capitalism? As we all know, on December 11, 2008, Bernard Madoff, a great investment manager and a mega philanthropist, was arrested, charged with allegedly running a $50 billion pyramid scheme. One has to ask here a naive question, but didn't Madoff, didn't he know that in the long term his scheme is bound to collapse? What force counteracted this obvious insight? I think it's not Madoff's personal evil or irrationality, but a pressure, a drive to go on, to expand the circulation in order to keep the machinery running, the pressure which is inscribed into the very system of capitalist relations. The temptation to move legitimate business into a pyramid scheme is part of the very nature of the capitalist circulation. There is no exact point at which... The Rubicon was crossed and the legitimate investment business morphed into an illegal pyramid scheme. The very dynamic of capitalism blurs this frontier because capitalist investment is, in its very core, a risk wager that the scheme will turn out to be profitable. It's an act of borrowing from the future. A sudden shift in uncontrollable circumstances can ruin a very safe investment. This is what the capitalist risk is about. This is the reality of the postmodern capitalism. The ruinous speculation raised to a much higher degree than it was even imaginable before. The self-propelling circulation of the capital thus remains more than ever the ultimate real of our lives, a beast which by definition cannot be controlled, since it itself controls our activity making us blind for even the most obvious insights into the dangers we are courting. It is one big fetishist denial. I know very well the risks I'm courting, even the inevitability of the final collapse, but nonetheless I can protract the collapse a little bit more, take a little bit greater risk, and so on indefinitely. The dilemma we are facing now is thus. Will the crisis be used following the rules defined by Naomi Klein in her short doctrine, or maybe, just maybe, will this very awareness of the imminent logic of today's capitalism, of where this logic is leading us, will it give rise to a slow awakening from the capitalist dogmatic dream? Perhaps the time has come to reapply to our situation Brecht's already quoted quick what is the robbing of a bank compared to the founding of a new bank? What is the stealing of a couple of thousands of dollars for which you go to prison compared to financial speculations which deprive tens of millions of their homes and savings and are then rewarded by state help of sublime grandeur? As Alain Badiou put it succinctly, the quote, one demands absolutely from ordinary citizens to understand that it is not possible to fill in the financial gap of the social security, but that without counting the billions, one should fill in the gap of the banks. We should seriously approve that nobody wants to nationalize a factory in trouble, but that it is evident to nationalize a bank which burned because of its speculations. End of quote. One, I think, generalize this statement. When we are fighting AIDS, hunger, lack of water, global warming, and so on. Although we recognize the urgency of these problems, there is always time to reflect, to postpone decisions. Recall how the main conclusion of the last meeting of the superpower leaders in Bali, hailed as a success, the main conclusion of this meeting was that. They will meet again in two years to continue. But with the financial meltdown, the urgency to act was unconditional. A sum beyond imagination, really, in the Kantian sense, sublime, was immediately found. Save the endangered species. Save the planet for global warming. Save the AIDS patients. Save the patients dying because of the lack of funds for, for expensive treatments. Save the starving children. All this can wait a little bit. But the call, save the banks, is an unconditional imperative which demands and gets immediate action. Did you feel this? How even democracy was practically suspended. I was fascinated in the United States how basically all got instantly together. McCain, McCain, Obama, Bush, when the Congress, remember, in the first vote, well, as I would put it as a wrong, as an old Stalinist, Voted wrongly, you know, took the wrong decision and they implied, like, okay, okay, democracy, but no time for jokes here. This has to be done unconditionally. And let us also not forget that this sublimely enormous sum was spent not for some clear, real test, but basically in order to restore confidence in the markets, to restore belief. Do we need another proof that capital is the real of our lives? The real whose demands are much more absolute than even the most pressing demands of our social and natural reality. We can all be dead because of some ecological catastrophe. There can be unrest, civil war, spread of disease, and so on. Okay, okay, that can wait. Banks, no jokes there. That's the real. You don't negotiate there. But things are not as easy as they appear here. And this, I think, can maybe be a positive lesson of this crisis. Namely, the problem here is that in the capitalist system, welfare of the mainstream effectively depends on the driving Wall Street. So all these populist formulas, don't help the banks, help the ordinary small businessmen, are deeply misleading. So while in the United States, Republican populists, who resisted these financial measures are doing the wrong thing for the right reason the proponents of the bailout are doing I think the right thing for the wrong reason to put it in, in more sophisticated terms of propositional logic the relationship between Main Street and Wall Street is a non-transitive one while what is good for Wall Street is not necessarily good for Main Street Main Street cannot thrive if Wall Street is not doing well. And this asymmetry gives an a priori advantage to Wall Street. That is to say it's really as if uh, we have here kind of a secret theological logic which says, of course, we ultimately want to help ordinary people, but you cannot do it directly. If you help them directly, it will be counterproductive. The only way to help ordinary people is to help the big banks, which are the blood, the very life of the system, as they put it. And then we cannot do anything, but we can just pray, hope, that the kind of a grace, miracle of the system, somehow, this help that we distribute to big banks, companies and so on, will somehow trickle down to ordinary people. So, so again, the problem is that, insofar as we remain in capitalism, there is a truth in this defense of Wall Street. The kick at Wall Street will really hit ordinary workers. Therein resides the hard lesson of today's crisis. The flaw is imminent to the system itself. We are, I think approaching the moment where short-term solutions will work less and less. That's, as a, one who is not qualified to pass high economic judgments, that's my, to put it very naively and modestly, even basic impression. That what really makes this crisis so unsettling is that these short-term solutions no longer work are even counterproductive, so that The more you try to do, the more you are confronting the basic problem, which is the system example. So what to do? How to act? Well, I will not answer at this point here. Come to the conference on the idea of communism this weekend, and the perfect college maybe you will get some answers. But I would like to use the remaining time to change the terrain and point out another danger, which is extremely serious, I claim, which lurks in the moments of crisis, a certain ideological regression. Recently, let me begin with a general observation. Recently, the notion of toxic subjects is gaining popularity in, especially, United States academia. For example, in her book Toxic People, Lillian Glass identifies 30 types of toxic people, some with humorous labels such as the smiling two-faced sneaky backstabber, and so on. She <laughs> provides a toxic people quiz to help readers identify which category the suspect toxic terror which uh, falls into and suggests ten techniques to handle them. Direct the confrontation, vicarious fantasy, calm questioning, and so on. Conceding that to some degree we are all toxic, Glass offers a toxic image inventory, enabling us to identify our own destructive behavior. In the same mode, Albert Bernstein, in his Emotional Vampires, dealing with people who drain and dry, goes a step further and directly mobilizes horror mythology, speaking directly of emotional vampires preying on us, masquerading as ordinary people. They may work in your office, your family, your circle of friends, perhaps, he says, they even share your bed. <laughs> Bright, talented, and charismatic, they win your trust and then they drain you out of your energy. This topic of toxic subjects is expanding much further than immediate interpersonal relations in a paradigmatic postmodern way. The predicate toxic covers a series of properties which belong to totally different domains natural, cultural, psychological, political, a toxic subject can be an immigrant with a deadly disease who should be quarantined, a terrorist whose deadly plans should be prevented and who belongs to Guantanamo. The empty zone the empty zone expect, exempted from the rule of law. A fundamentalist ideologist who should be silenced because he is spreading hatred a parent, teacher, or priest who abuses and corrupts children. See Susan Forward's Toxic Parents, a detailed study of the way parents can ruin their children's lives. So what I propose here is that, in a Hegelian way of universalization, one should accomplish here the passage from predicate to subject. From the standpoint of postmodern individualist subject, is there not something toxic? In the very idea of a parent, this parasitic mediator who subjects the subject to an authority in the very process of of raising him or her as free and autonomous. If there is a clinical lesson about parenthood, it is that there is no clean, non-toxic parent. And once you bring this generalization, I think, to the end, what is toxic is ultimately the neighbor as such the abyss of the neighbor's desire or obscene enjoyment, so that the ultimate aim of all rules of personal relations is to quarantine or at least neutralize and contain this toxic dimension, to reduce the neighbor to a fellow man. It is thus not enough to search for contingent toxic components in another subject. Maybe subject as such is toxic. And this model is, I think, socialized in the emerging new postmodern racism directed at, let's call them, toxic immigrants. As if in an ironic nod to Giorgio Agamben's theory, in July 2008, the Italian government proclaimed the state of emergency, which still lasts, in entire Italy, in order to cope with the problem of the neighbour in its paradigmatic form today, the illegal entry of the immigrants from North Africa and Eastern Europe. Making a step further in this direction, at the beginning of August 2008, the Italian government demonstratively deployed 4,000 armed soldiers to control sensitive points in big cities, train stations, commercial centres, and thus raise public security. There are now plans to use the military to protect women from rapes, and so on. What is important to note here is that the emergency state was introduced without great fuss. Life goes on as normal. Is this not the state we are approaching in developed countries all around the globe? where this or that form of emergency state against the terrorist threat, against immigrants, is simply accepted as a necessary measure which guarantees the normal run of things. Which is the logic at work here? We should return to a pretty terrifying formula of so-called reasonable anti-Semitism, which was proposed in France in 1938 by the great French uh, anti-Semitic intellectual Robert Brasillach, who saw himself as a modern anti-Semite. Quote from him. We grant ourselves permission to applaud Charlie Chaplin, a half Jew, at the movies; to admire Bruce, a half Jew; to applaud Yehudi Menuhin, a Jew. And the voice of Hitler is carried over radio waves named after the Jew Kurtz. We don't want to kill anyone. We don't want to organize any pogrom. But we also think that the best way to hinder. always unpredictable actions of instinctual antisemitism is to organize a reasonable antisemitism. End of quote. Is this same attitude not at work in the way our governments are dealing with the immigrant threat? After righteously rejecting Direct populist racism is unreasonable, unacceptable for our democratic standards. They endorse uh, reasonably racist protective measures. Or as today's Brazilans, some of them even social democrats, are telling us. We grant ourselves permission to applaud African and East European sportsmen, Asian doctors, Indian software programmers. We don't want to kill anyone. We don't want to organize any power. But we also think that the best way to hinder the always unpredictable violent anti-immigrant measures is to organize a reasonable anti-immigrant protection. What I fear is that such reasonable racism will get a big boost by the present crisis. Radical multicultural liberals are of course terrified by this prospect. But I think their legacy is part of the problem. Why? I want to refer to a book now with, with which I totally don't agree. It's Jean-Claude Milner's new analysis of the May 68 in France, in prison, The Arrogance for the Present. But there are some important developments in the book. Milner develops how the French establishment succeeded in undoing all threatening consequences of the May 68 by way of incorporating the so-called spirit of 68 and thereby turning it against the real core of 68. The demand for new rights, which would have meant a true redistribution of power, were granted, but in the guise of permissions. and permissive society designates precisely the way to broaden the scope of what subjects are allowed to do without giving them any real additional power. A nice quote from me. Those who hold power know very well the difference between a right and a permission. A right, in a strict sense of the term, gives access to the exercise of a power at the expense of another power. A permission doesn't diminish the power of the one who gives it. It doesn't augment the power of the one who gets it. It makes his life easier, which is not nothing. This is how it goes with the right to divorce, abortion, gay marriage, and so on. They, these are all permissions must as rights. They do not change in any way the distribution of powers. Such was the effect of the spirit of 68. It effectively contributed to make life easier. This is a lot, but this is not all, because it didn't encroach upon powers. End of quote. So, in what did, more closely, this shift in capitalism after 68 events consist? The best description, at least for what went on in France, is probably Boltanskis and Chapello's The New Spirit of Capitalism. The thesis is that from the 1970s onwards, a new figure of the spirit of capitalism is emerging. Capitalism abandoned the hierarchical Fordist structure of the production process and developed a network-based form of organization founded on employee initiative and autonomy in the workplace. Instead of hierarchical centralized chain of command, we get networks with a multitude of participants organizing work in the form of teams or projects intent of cust- on customer satisfaction and a general mobilization of workers thanks to their leaders' vision. In this way capitalism is transformed and legitimized as an egalitarian project. By way of accentuating autopoetic interaction and spontaneous self-organization it even asserts the far left rhetoric of workers' self-management and turned it from an anti-capitalist to a capitalist slogan. At the level of consumption, this new spirit is the one of the so-called cultural capitalism. We primarily buy commodities, neither on account of their utility, their real properties, nor as status symbols. We buy them to get the experience provided by them. We consummate them in order to make our life pleasurable and meaningful. Consumation should sustain the quality of life. Its time should be, as they put it in California, quality time. Not the time of alienation, of imitating models imposed by society, but the time of the authentic fulfillment of my true self, of the sensuous play of experience of caring for others from ecology to charity. Here is an exemplary case of cultural capitalism, Starbucks' self of their ethos, like E-T-H-O-S, like ethics, Ethos Water Program. Quote. I mean, after reading this passage, I was tempted to start to be, to be a terrorist and start to throw in a lot of water. and <laughs> <protests, startups. laughs> Ethos Water is a brand with a social mission helping children around the world get clean water and raising awareness of the world water crisis. Every time you purchase a bottle of ETHOS Water, ETHOS Water will contribute five U.S. cents towards our goal of raising at least 10 million dollars. Through the Starbucks Foundation, ETHOS Water supports humanitarian water programs in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Today, ETHOS Water grant commitments exceeded 6.2 million, and so on, and so on and so on. Of course, they forget to say that this, uh, I mean, the, the, the manipulation here is breathtaking, that yes, but in the United States this water costs $2.50 instead of $2.00 as we did before, so that they give 5 cents but immediately they profit 45 But, I think, they make you feel better, that's the point. This is how capitalism, at the level of consumption, integrated the legacy of 68, the critique of alienated consumption. Authentic experience matters. Is this not why, let me go to the end here, why we buy organic food? Don't fool me. Do you really believe that the half-rotten expensive organic apple are healthier? I don't. So why are we buying them? Well, it makes you feel good. Instead, you say to yourself, you see, I'm not just a stupid consumer. By buying organic apples, I participate in a meaningful social activity. I'm helping all of us becoming aware of the crisis. We are all in and so on and so on and so on. That's the problem for me, this attitude. Why? The first thing to do is to problematize <coughs> this Tolerant and so on, post 68 ideological universe. How? Allow me to conclude with a couple of more radical proposals. Walter Benjamin's old thesis, every rise of fascism bears witness to a failed revolution, I think, not only holds today, but is today more pertinent than ever. Liberals like to point out similarities between left and right extremisms. Hitler's terror and Kemp's imitated Bolshevik terror. The Leninist party is today alive in Al-Qaeda, and so on, and so on. I say, yes, but what does all this mean? I claim it can also be read as an indication of how fascism, literally replaced, took the place of the leftist revolution. Its rise was... The left failure, but simultaneously a proof that there was a revolutionary potential, a dissatisfaction which the left was not able to mobilise. And I think today it's especially important to emphasise how the same codes for the so called by some people not me Islamofascism. fascism is the rise of radical Islamism not exactly correlative to the disappearance of the secular left in Muslim countries. Today, when Afghanistan is portrayed as the utmost Islamic fundamentalist country, who still remembers that 30 years ago it was a country with strong secular tradition, up to a powerful communist party which took power there independently of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union later intervened, the same regime. Where did this secular tradition disappear? In Europe, exactly the same goes for Bosnia. Back in the 1970s and 80s, Bosnia and Herzegovina was multiculturally the most thriving, alive of all Yugoslav republics. With an internationally recognized cinema, school, a unique style of rock music and so on. In today's Bosnia, there are effectively strong fundamentalist forces, like the crowd which brutally attacked the Gay Parade in Sarajevo in September 2008. But the main reason of this Regression is the desperate situation of Bosnians in the 92-95 war, where they were basically abandoned by the Western powers. And, as Thomas Frank has shown, the same goes for Kansas, the US homegrown version of Afghanistan. Kansas, the state which was still in 1970s, the bedrock of radical leftist populism, is today the bedrock of Christian fundamentalism. Does this not confirm again Benjamin's thesis that fascism is an index of a failed revolution. Now, the most catastrophic conclusion that can be drawn from this constellation is the one drawn by a theoretician who I otherwise appreciate very much, Moishe Postone and some of his colleagues. His thesis, to simplify it, is the following one. Since every crisis which opens up a space for radical left also gives rise to anti-Semitism or populist racism, it is better for us to support successful capitalism and hope there will be no crisis. Brought to its conclusion by, for example, Bernard-André Lévy, this reasoning implies that, and this is now Bernard-André Lévy's thesis, anti-capitalism is as such secretly anti-Semitic. The difference between liberalism and the radical left is that Although they refer to the same three elements, liberal center, populist right, radical left, they locate them in a different topology. For the liberal center, radical left and right are the two forms of appearance of the same totalitarian axis. While for the left, the only two alternatives is between itself, the left, and the liberal mainstream. With the populist, populist radical right as nothing but the symptom of liberalism's inability to deal with the leftist threat. One should accomplish here a Hegelian step back and put in question the very measure from which fundamentalism appears in all its horror. Liberals, I think, have long ago lost their right to judge I modern this? Let me now conclude with a brutal example. The third wave, not third wave, wave, like the sea. This is, maybe some of you know, a social experiment undertaken by history teacher Ron Jones at Cabernet High School in Palo Alto, California, of course, in in, uh, April 1967. Unable to explain to his students how Germans could obey Hitler and accept the Holocaust, He decided to show this to them instead. So, he started a movement called The Third Way and convinced his students that the the goal of the movement is to eliminate democracy. (coughs) Jones emphasized this main point of the movement in the motto, strength through discipline, strength through community, strength through action, strength through pride. On the fourth day, however, Jones decided to terminate the experiment because it was slipping out of his control. Students became increasingly increasingly involved in the project, fully identified with it. Their discipline and loyalty were astounding. Some of them even denounced to Jones some of their peers who they suspected they do not really fully believe in the project. So on the fourth day, uh, uh, Jones ordered his students to attend a rally at noon next day, where then next day, instead of a televised address by the leader, the students were presented with an just an empty TV screen, empty cannon. After a few minutes of waiting, Jones announced that they have been part of an experiment in fascism and that they all willingly created a sense of superiority and <coughs> trashing the enemy. So now you understand how Hitler did it. Uh, now comes my result. If this is not now what I always expected to do, shocking and take enough, then I don't know what to do. I'm more on the side of the students here. I sympathize with the students. In what sense? As expected, <clears throat> liberals were fascinated by the third wave, discerning in it the deep Lord of the Flies insight into how, beneath the civilized surface, we are all potentially fascists. The barbarian sadistic beast is lurking in all of us, awaiting its opportunity, you know, liberal science topic. Be careful, politically correct, watch over yourself, the beast is always waiting. But I claim what if we give the perspective a little bit and conceive the authoritarian personality which exploded here as the repressed ofverse of the liberal open personality itself. One encounters the same ambiguity in the legendary study on authoritarian personality in which, as you all know, Adorno participated. The features of authoritarian personality are clearly opposed to the standard figure of open democratic personality. So the underlying dilemma is, and typically Adorno in the study avoids this crucial question, How is then the relationship between open democratic and authoritarian personality to be understood? Are these two types of personality simply the opposites in a struggle, so that we should fight one against the other? Or, in other words, which is the status of the scale of features which are the opposite of those which define the authoritarian personality? Are they simply to be endorsed as democratic personality, or is the authoritarian personality to be conceived as the symptom of truth, the repress, if you want, of the democratic personality? The view of more critical Marxists like Agamben, and the view towards which I think Adorno takes, but probably for politically opportunistic reasons, which he is afraid to endorse it. Now, this is how we should read the liberal enthusiasm for the third-wave phenomenon. The function of this experiment, I think, was to assert the struggle of liberal openness against the totalitarian closure as our fundamental struggle, and thus to obliterate their mutual complicity. The fact that totalitarianism is the return of the repress of liberalism itself – this obliteration also enables us to condense fascism and communism into one and the same anti liberal totalitarian figure, and thus to block the search for a third option. This is the there is, this is what I place. In the same way you got it, as the struggle between today's religious fundamentalism and liberal openness is not the true struggle. In the same way that I think this is a false opposition. Of course they are radically opposed. This is a big fight. But I claim it's kind of a vicious cycle they are reproducing each other. The task is to see what is missing in this opposition. The opposition between liberal democratic openness and uh, fundamentalist violence, whatever, what it excludes, is simply the left. Left is missing here. And it's the same here, I think that it's absolutely crucial to see how this self-satisfaction that it gives you this, oh, you see how we were caught into the totalitarian trap, we started to imitate, to but we are not really that, we should be very careful, and so on, is to avoid the crucial question, the self-option. The personality structure of a subject engaged in a radical emancipatory struggle, a subject who subscribes without any qualms to the motto, strength through discipline, strength to community, strength through action, strength to pride, and yet remains engaged in a radical egalitarian emancipatory struggle. That's my, maybe I'm half crazy, but that's my thesis. Listen to this. Strength through discipline. Strength through community, strength through action, strength to pride. Sorry, I don't see any problem. with this. What's bad about this? If the community is a, 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 a radical emancipatory community, if the discipline is a discipline or anti-fascist or whatever strategy, if the action is progressive action, if, if the pride is the pride in our progressive achievements, what's wrong in all this? The liberal simply cannot see this. That's the danger here. What a liberal can do, apropos, such a subject, is either to dismiss it as just another version of the authoritarian personality, or to claim that this subject displays a contradiction, like it's inconsistent, like you have nice goals, equality, and so on, but your means are authoritarian, and so on, and so on. In both cases, the specificity of this third type of subject remains unseen. There is no place for this type of subject in today's liberal cognitive mapping. So that's my thesis. Now I'm really concluding. What Max Horkheimer said about uh, 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 fascism and uh, liberal capitalism. You know that those who do not want to talk about fascism should also keep quiet about liberal democracy. Uh, in the sense of they mutually imply each other, should also be applied to today's fundamentalism. Those who do not want to talk critically about liberal democracy and its noble principles should also be quiet about religious fundamentalism. The task today is to break out of this vicious cycle. A third position, by definition, a left one, is needed. Otherwise, Otherwise, we are, I think, to put it very simply, we are approaching something, all of us, gradually something new, which is already emerging. What is this new? Recently, as you can see, I read many reactionaries. I read a small book, rather the a debate, by Peter Sloterdijk, my political enemy, but he's not an idiot who says something very interesting. He says that if there will be a monument to some person hundred years from now, it will be probably to Lee Kuan Yew. You know who he was? The long-time leader of Singapore, his, to put it ironically, historic achievement was first to invent successfully practice, to cut a long story short, capitalism without democracy. Till now, liberals had one point to make, I fully admit it. Sooner or later, Capitalism implied, demanded some kind of democracy. You can have a decade, maximum two, of dictatorship, like, I don't know, uh, like Chile, like South Korea, but then, when things develop, democracy becomes necessary. I think the historical meaning of what Li Kuan Yew invented is a model which no longer follows this logic. And the same goes on in China today, Maybe you know that Deng Xiaoping, when he was preparing his reforms, visited Singapore and I saw him saying on the TV, I saw some interview like this is the path for the new China and so on. So, because of this, because of this, because the last thing that you can say did give some legitimacy to capitalism, this inexplicable link with democracy which for its falling apart. What does it mean? This means that liberalism itself is not strong enough I claim to fight fundamentalism. For this, the third position is needed we need to break out of it. How? I don't know I only know what sad fate awaits us if we don't do it. Thank you very much. But I like the dialogues, but I like uh, late platters' dialogues. You know how they look? One guy talks all the time, the other says, like, every ten minutes, by Zeus, so it is, Socrates, wow. yes. <laughs> and I invite like you to a sense to dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> this is something in regards to dialogue. I just had a
1: question about your feelings on Huntington and his opinions on culture. Um, um, his essays he's written well, before he passed on, um, on how uh, affecting culture will invariably affect the society as a whole. And um, following on from that um, in regards to, um, in regards to your, question, your um, statements about immigration, I'm wondering
0: um, your personal opinion on uh, the expansion of the EU to include Turkey. Uh, uh, as to the exclusion of Turkey, okay, but this is a theoretical question. Maybe I don't know enough about it. My general position is uh, generally I am sympathetic although I see some problems and so on. That's, not, that's an empirical question that I'm probably not fully qualified. But what really me is you mentioned hunting. My main position apropos hunting was made clear. Well, I think I elaborated in my Welcome to the Desert of the Real, where <coughs> my claim is that one should not oppose hunting to end Fukuyama. They are, for me two, sorry, they are for me two sides of the same coin. Usually one says, oh, Fukuyama naively thinks, or at least did think about the possibility of this, I don't know, new global liberal democratic universe, we are all participating in the same big society, while hundreds of classes, conflicts, and so on. But I think that uh, classes of civilizations are precisely the form of politics at, as Fukuyama would have put it, at the end of history. Where, precisely because of the move that I described very briefly, not theoretically, really analytically, at the very beginning, this Those political universe where the questions we are debating, which are truly questions of political choice are more and more cultural questions, gay questions, gay marriages, uh, 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 abortion, and so on. So, I think that the two are the same. And this, again, has to be uh, perceived as some kind of dialectical identity which gives the key to our situation. I don't think that these cultural classes or classes of civilizations are, are a kind of how should I put it remainder not yet overcome by further liberal development. I think that the more we will have global capitalism the more we will have that. That's where I'm, that's where if you want, that's where That's where I'm a pessimist. Although, another question. So, So, my formula here is not to get over the clash of civilizations with some kind of the most boring United UNESCO proclamations, you know, nonetheless, we are all one, one big human family and then this. No, I think... We need, as I always, more struggle, more hatred. That is to say, the only way to overcome clash of civilizations, the only true link between civilizations, is to focus on the clash within each civilization and then to establish a solidarity. Our solidarity with Arabs shouldn't be like, oh, we may have different gods, but you know, like this postmodern modern Gnostic shit sounds, you know, but aren't all our gods different names for the same unknown entity or whatever? No. The point is that divisions are even right. The point is we have a clash within ourselves. Our civilization is agonistic. Their civilization is agonistic. Let's see if we can... Have a solidarity in our struggles. The solidarity in struggles for me, the only way out of out of clash of civilization. And can I tell you briefly,
1: briefly?
0: Uh, (laughs) I'm a human in the sense that Immanuel Kant says that uh, a human is an animal who needs a master. You know, like I need somebody to control (laughs) me. When I visited recently China, you know, first we were engaged in this. very personal, simple experience, in this you know, totally boring multicultural politeness, is, oh how interesting you know, trying to, what you were saying, trying to establish some links, then two groups of Chinese started to fight each other ferociously about how to reach some academic points and so on and okay, to make a slight last uh, uh, almost gracious remark, I had a wonderful experience where one of the participants the participants attacked me that I underestimate the, uh, the uh, that I underestimate the role of transcendent uh, transcendent realism in Lacan. Now, I didn't quite get it, what this would mean, no? I thought transcendent realism like reality exists and is transcendent to our sense it's like some kind of primitive learning from materialism and imperial materialism or what, No. And then I got it. And uh, that was the beauty. This was uh, the clumsy retranslation back into English of Surrealism. They translated so <laughs> Transcendent, simply meant in young Lacombe, reference to Dali, all those guys were crucial. No. But, okay, that's another question that I thought uh, is What I'm saying is that then there was a clash between two groups of Chinese, and at that point I became identified. No, I immediately joined one gang and then it is very mysteriously how even all these problems, oh sorry to understand you correctly and so on, literally disappeared. I believe in universality, but not in this universality above conflicts, you know, like what are our vain struggles if you look from the proper discussion, whatever. No, universality is universality of a fight. That's for me the only universality, to be reasserted. This is the way above this extremely boring, politically correct debates. How do we know that when I debate with the others, that I'm not imposing when I talk about freedom, my notion of freedom of them, that I'm not a secret Western imperialist. Well, if we fight the enemy, all this common enemy, all these problems disappear. All these problems disappear. I think Political struggle is a form of actual universality. Thank you. <laughs> we still got we'll time to squeeze a couple more in
1: Amsterdam.
0: One of the points of your last book was that um, to rehabilitate... There are too yeah. many. Which one? Lost causes? Yeah, lost causes. Sorry. Um, to rehabilitate the kind of leftist political ideology you we were talking about, that one of the crucial... Uh, things that needed to happen was uh, to analyse Stalinism and the authoritarian tendencies in that form mm-hmm. of leftist politics um, that, that hadn't been dealt with by the left but had been extremely well critiqued by the right. Um, I just wondered when you're going to get around to writing a book on that. You know what? Uh, I do love you, but let me make... I'm sorry. No, yeah. Let me make a point clear. I'm even embarrassed to answer to you precisely because I love your question, but you know what happens to me all the time when I write about Stalinism? People all tell me, can you get rid of this boring East European dramas and so on? Like, as if nobody nobody cares about it. But again, let me quickly repeat quickly, quickly, not to provoke. <laughs> First, all those who think that I'm kind of a playing some kind of a obscene game of secretly rehabilitating Stalin or whatever, I'm sorry to disappoint them. <laughs> they are wrong. No? Uh, what intrigues me, the only point on which I do insist is that there was an authentic moment in October Revolution, which makes the whole situation, if anything, even more tragic. Because what I want to emphasize is how, uh, what I want to, uh, 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 a point I repeated in many of my last books, for example, isn't this a mystery for me, a kind of a philosophical detective mystery, why almost total silence in Frankfurt School about Stalinism, and no, no, I did my homework, don't counterattack, I know, there is uh, Soviet Marxism by by Baconset, there, there is, uh, there is uh, this Neumann-Behemoth no? already in the late 30s I think and then there are some of dissident uses of Habermas in some Western countries like Habermas, this civil society, blah blah blah, to apply this against the totalitarianism but uh, what, Be- what Neumann does in Behemoth is simply a version of that fashionable theory that all big systems of the day, fascism, communism, New Deal, United, United States, are approaching the same totalitarian system, and so on, and so on. So this is not really an analysis. Marcuse's book is the weird, it's a short book, it's the weirdest book I've ever read. It's so strange, it's basically the analysis of Khrushchev's, uh, well, yes, Congress speaks what yeah, yeah, sure. no. I want today is that this is an enigma, and I, my sincere wager here, as you maybe know with your kind question, is that only the left can effectively do it. For example, when I read, I have no problems, as you mm-hmm. enemies. When I read, for example, Robert Topmes, I think his best book is nonetheless that, The Harvest of Sorrow for Ukraine. Uh, it's you learn a lot, but there is something too naive in the theoretical explanation. In the sense of he simply makes Stalinists, how to put it, basically people who are the same liberal type but really evil. Something is missing there. And the same goes, maybe you know, I developed this for the film, did you see? I'm mean, very short, but this is, I think, a nice one. <laughs> the film, uh, did you see all things, so I can make it without boring you with telling the story. Make an example. Did you see life of the Other? Uh, life living there under no, others? Life of others, yes. You know what shocked me in that movie? It tries to be ferociously anti-communist. I even know why. The guy is from East Prussia, his uh, estate from a noble family was taken, so that was his revenge. I claim And I claim this as a language. The film is way too soft. He didn't get it. You know what's the story? Some corrupted minister wants to screw the writer's beautiful wife, so he asks the agents to organize, uh, to, to 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 listen to, to totally, uh, watch over him to find something even to plant so that he will be arrested, he will get uh, the the woman and so on and so on. But you know what's my point? Wait a minute. A thing like this can happen. Also in any capitalist country, a corrupted operative can do it. What was specific of East Germany was that the writer like the one presented in the film, you know, international great figure and so on, sorry, he would have been totally under constant observation by at least 10 agents all the time, even even if there were to be no minister who wants to screw your wife. (laughs) I mean, you get the point. Uh, 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 At home it was his step. Uh, all guys were the same, uh, how to put it, relatively decent study agents as the hero of the film who turns around, the, exactly without, this is what you then get it from the film, that it was in the system, without that, call minister, exactly the same effort. and this makes the film for me really dark, it's another version of Casablanca, I haven't seen such, such an unethical film, the story is... You know the story. Well, it is... Uh, uh, we have to sacrifice the woman and then it's the beginning of a beautiful French. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are we aware what we swallow? To that theory, no? So, you get... Uh, just briefly back to Frankfurt School. Uh, look, what's the big achievement of Frankfurt School? Dialectic of Enlightenment. Which means horrible phenomena of the 20th century are not simply a result of some remainders of the dark mythic past... They are results of the, how to put it, inherent antagonisms, contradictions in the very project of enlightenment. If your, at least it's mine, first association, if you want the pure example of dialectic of enlightenment, enlightenment it's Stalinism much more than fascism. With fascism, it's relatively clear, it's uh, conservative, conservative uh, uh, conservative revolution, this regression, blah, blah. But Stalinism is the true enigma, where we have a movement, not like Nazism saying we need old hierarchy and so on, a movement of radical equality freedom, which generated a horror in some sense, maybe we can say at the level of physical suffering, even worse than Nazism. How was this possible? How is it that, for example, this would have been... And I'm saying this as a leftist, my God. This would have been one of my main approaches to Habermas. Read him. You have there a German philosopher writing the last 50 years. If you read his books, would you ever have guessed that there are two German states? That there is another... Why this avoidance? The only answer that I got from their friends is they knew that to attack communism would mean to play the role in the Cold War they didn't want to. Don't bullshit, because they made extremely clear how ferociously anti-communist they were in their public political statement. For example, in 67-68, when an American general visited Frankfurt and there were big student demonstrators, Horkheimer not only rejected but he made uh, to support the demonstrators, he made a public statement claiming whenever U.S. Army intervenes, it is on behalf of freedom and peace. The same goes today for Vietnam. If you read Horkheimer's letters, you can see he was closer to Christian Democrats or liberals, Theodore Hoyce, the first president who was his friend, than to Social Democrats. So this is for me the enigma. This intrigues me. I think Stalinism simply is still an enigma. And all this attempts to reduce it to... Just another sub-formula of the so-called mm. Nazi totalitarianism doesn't work. So, yes, Should I Shall I move on, Slash? Slash, couple more. I, I gracefully accept the... Okay. Kind of... One or two decades ago and there was... Russia? No. I'm, 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 I'm Israeli. I'm very sorry. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. i mother is uh, from East, uh, ah I knew you said <laughs> please
0: go i ok thanks um, I wanted to ask you if you are familiar with uh, a marginal uh, political uh, alternative from one or two
1: decades ago that offered an, a third position uh, but uh, their third position was in opposition of both
0: capitalism and communism Uh, they saw capitalism and communism as uh, redundant and uh, evil to some extent and they tried to make a third position which was a synthesis of supposedly left and right uh, ideas I wanted to ask if you're familiar Was this third option called fascism? Pardon? (laughs) Because I'm quite serious now the way you describe this third position fits pretty exactly some kind of fascism is the soft fascism. This is how they always present themselves fascists. Mm -hmm. We want the third way, taking the the best from both, from communists their sense of order, but this is the genuine fascist legitimization, is that communists, it's good, they want order, and so on, organization, but they speak too much at the individual level, economic initiative, and so on, and so on, so we have to find a third way. Sorry, no. Again, so when you mention this, no. Sorry, I'm not aware of this. What I fear more generally is that I'm not. Again, I don't know into what direction the they went. But what I generally fear is, you may disagree with me. The, there is one way to be anti-capitalist, which is to. Change or elevate the critique of capitalism into a kind of a—you uh, find elements of this in Heidegger, in, uh, in some of the Frankfurt School people and you want—into a kind of more general critique of what can be called modern technology, instrumentalism, or whatever, and then this explodes into a critique of technological civilization of such, and this, this can then be connected with so-called deep ecology. The idea is something went terribly wrong with industrial evolution or before or before the subjectivity. For example, even the one who I still have great confidence and totally support his politics. Evo Morales made recently a big proclamation. Somebody sent me his letter to the international public where he already starts with the way that made me nervous, like Mother Earth is complaining, Mother Earth is wounded, you know. And then capitalism, you know, this abstract corporatist critique of capitalism. So, to give you, a, how do call it, a teaser for this weekend's communism, what i will try to develop there is that of course liberal capitalism will not be able to survive the way it is but i think that the term to be dropped is socialism socialism for me is you know usually take socialism no socialism is for me uh, basically uh, how should I put it it's Social The meaning of socialism today, I think, is mostly conservative. Socialism means, let's keep freedoms, but with a kind of hierarchic, hierarchic, organic element, and so on. So I think that the future will be either socialist or, or, or communist, I think. That the, the, the capitalism, in order to survive, we have to more and more incorporate what today's predominant form of socialism, which I'm tempted to call capitalism with Asian values. And the paradox is that against this temptation, we, radical left, should be the one to to take over. My message to liberals is not, I hate you too much freedom. It's, don't you see that you will have to come to us? That the only way to, that the tendency goes into... Let's call it the capitalism with, with Asian values. The only way for you to save what you are striving for is, 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 is to come to us. That's, I think, what will be the struggle. Should we take one more question? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Just a me And here, although, no, let me, because I'm often attacked to me. One point, I think of this. Didn't somebody accuse me like I'm like neither here nor there on the question of Israel, palestina and so on? No. No, I first I like my position because I was attacked recently, Adam Kierce, the New Republic as openly neo fascist, anti Semite. It's I mean what people can write it's breathtaking, you know, like the thesis you find there is that I actively support read it, it's on the internet the physical elimination holocaust of all Jews, with the exception of those who are critical about who are critical about the state of Israel. My thesis is simply new colonies. Okay, why not? Interesting creative Yeah. But what I want to say is that, <laughs> is that it goes without saying that for the same text, some friend told me I was attacked in Al-Akram as the Zionist taken, so <laughs> There is a moment of truth in what sense? I think it's crucial here to maintain. If you are a leftist, that should be your position. Even if we all die because of the Middle East conflict, it's in a fundamental sense a fake, wrong conflict. This conflict is here because we are not fighting the right battles. I, I think for me it's the end of the world, then hunting is right or whatever, if you accept that this is the real conflict. Which means the consequence of this is that on the one hand, there should be absolutely no tolerance for anti Semitism. I don't buy this, oh, you should understand that the Arabs, because no, they were so screwed up. No. On the other hand, one should emphasize enough more, and it's difficult interesting how difficult this is to publish. I send this to New York Times we didn't want it and so on. My basic point about Middle East process now. Okay, of course this is open to debate. Should uh, Hamas, bomb, rocket, blah, blah, blah. It's easy then to play this moralistic role. Oh my God, of course, if there are rockets falling from you, you will answer. Okay, in a way, admit it, but I think that's not the question. The question is, what happens when nothing is going on in the Middle East? You should really visit Middle East and go to Ramallah or East, sorry, West Bank. Don't go to these big political centers. Don't. I did it with ordinary farmers, and so on, and you will see what it means, how they call it, uh, occupation through bureaucracy. This detailed, slow strangling of, of Palestinian viability, with measure of ridiculous mm-hmm. rules. Do you know, for example, these are small words, it's not big, big news, but do you know, for example, that a week ago, it was posted in Western media, or marginally, that the government of, of Israel established a plan to build 70,000 new homes. 70,000, which means for 400,000 people. On the West Bank, even worse. If you look how they are disposed, they are not close at least to the border with 367 Israel. They are not even, most of them, close to the existing Israeli settlements. But they are strategically disposed to gradually cover cover all the terrain. That's, for me, nonetheless, without excusing any of horrible things that Palestinians can be doing, and so on. This is, for me, the fundamental reality of the situation. This is what we should talk about. This is what is really going on. This slow, slow strangling of a nation. Okay. Time for one more question. We come from a... We used the same country before you, started. I'm
1: from Kosovo. Ah. So I just want to ask you a question. You know, I didn't know this if (laughs) you (laughs) might call. How did the authoritarian communist regime that you, when you obviously you were being at your your early stages in life, former Yugoslavia, how did that influence on your formation as an intellectual and your position today, um, and how did you escape from it as well? You know.
0: Well, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, even exactly big problem of escaping. Uh, because, as you, okay, you you are too young to be, but, okay, your parents, blah, blah, were in Kosovo, there probably the situation was for specific reasons yes. of tensions, which serves more tense, but the way I experienced the situation in Slovenia is that it was almost an ideal position to develop critical theory. Why? Because on the one hand, we were still, let's face it, in spite of all features which made life much more tolerable than in ordinary East European regimes, we were still in a communist regime. So cut the crap, it was the same party dictatorship and so on. Life was much better, I mean like, I don't know, freedom of art, relative, freedom of theory, relative, freedom to go <laughs> to the West blah. but it was. So we didn't have any illusions that even some Western idiots had, you know, oh, but isn't Yugoslav uh, socialism something unique, a third way, and so on, it wasn't, no? On the other hand, precisely because borders to the West were totally open, we also didn't have many illusions about the West. This is, I think, very simply our, uh, our, 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 in a way, in a way, this bit level, our, uh, our priority. Just to answer you another question, I ask you if colleague from another, ex- where well, incidentally next week I'm going to Pristina to Kosovo, uh, uh, have yes. to be there. And, uh, what, uh, is that? I think I totally reject any of this old ethnic hatred bullshit about the war. I think. The war exploded as a, to use Habermas's terms, the legiti- legitimation crisis of communist nomenclatura. In the last decade, they lost any economic justification, whatever, so... Uh, the only way for local nomenclaturas to justify their rule, legitimize them, was to reinvent themselves as protectors of local communist interests and so on and so on. This was I think Milosevic's genius. Milosevic's problem I don't think even really cared about the search. His problem was how to legitimise nomenclatura staying in power. And that was his formula. And it's wonderful to read if any of you see that BBC series, Fall of Yugoslavia. Look at the first one, it's wonderful how many crucial data that I almost forgot to forget that. Do you know where Yugoslav army the first time in old Yugoslavia publicly intervened? In Kosovo. No! No, 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 no. no. Uh, Okay, maybe in smaller, but really, you remember when there were big, okay, maybe because Kosovo, I but and certainly and a little <laughs> bit later, do you remember, in Serbia itself, there were big demonstrations against Milosevic itself. And there, the army intervened, and then, really intervened, tanks were all in Belgrade, and then, one week later, Milosevic's people announced, made the decision, it's now clear, all his guys admitted that, to escalate more in Croatia. It was the direct answer of, you know, like, this is for me again, forget about all those 1,000 years old struggles or whatever, up, up and down, no? The problem was, thick, and you see, here, this is what really makes me sad. I think that tragically, the civil war, or the war that we have, uh, I don't like the term civil war because then this implies as if. There were ethnic groups or nations fighting each other. I sleep. People ask me, why are you pro-Bosnian? Are, are they the same as... I-? No, I tell them what happened to me recently. Half a year ago, I was in Sarajevo. When I approached by a car from the airport, no, I looked at those mountains and asked the taxi driver, I asked me, look, ah, are these the mountains where Serb guns were hitting us? And this was an ordinary guy. And I was, my God, I don't say almost started to cry, but one step towards, no? I was together when he said, more Serbs, these serps are ethnics. Serbs were also, you know, he absolutely spontaneously rejected to take it as ethnic conflict. I mean, this, this is what I find, what I find admirable there, no? So, but the tragedy, I think, is that somehow precisely what was relatively more open about Yugoslav regime made it more vulnerable to this kind of dissolution in war. I claim, if we were to have a more hardline Stalinist, openly Stalinist regime, maybe you just cut off the head and it would have been easier. This is, for me, the saddest irony of the situation, that what made the situation better before made it much worse later, no?